Hey, uh, I want you to open your, again, hopefully you're in Genesis chapter 36, and uh, we're going to read a, a very difficult passage today, a difficult passage to preach from, and so my sermon today is going to be very tangential to this. You know what that means? Just, how about that? Come on. I need a drum. Ba pow. Uh, it's going to kind of, kind of touch this a little bit because it's hard to preach names, and so uh, uh, without going really, really deep, and and you know we say boring preaching is sinful around here, and so I don't want to get into names, and so uh, we're we're going to we're going to dive into it, but I think the Lord's got something for us specifically uh, today that He laid on my heart for sure. So uh, Genesis chapter thirty-six. I hope you'll open your Bibles uh, because I want you to watch me read these names. Okay? Because I'm saying them confidently. I've been practicing, and so I'm going to say them confidently. Part of the deal is, is uh, the guy that does it on the Bible app, he has a little bit of an accent. And so I'll say these names with a little bit of an accent from time to time. And so it's not my Cossuth, Mississippi accent. It's whatever the Bible app accent is, is what you'll hear coming out. Uh, so here we go. Uh, so these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau, I have, to re- I have to read it a little slower too. You know, normally I read these texts pretty fast, but he reads them pretty slow too, and that's how I've practiced. So, uh, uh, so just bear with me. This is going to take a minute. We've got a lot of verses here. There are uh, like 41 verses that we got to read, okay? Mostly names that you probably won't name your children. So, uh, but if you hear a name that you like, would you would name your children, just write that one down, jot it down, because you might want to keep that. All right, here we go. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elan, the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Tracking with me? All right, we're two verses in. And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Adah bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Reuel. And Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all the property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Tema was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek, circle Amalek. You're going to want to, we'll come back to that just really briefly shortly. To Eliphaz, these are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, 
and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chief of Nah, nah the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. Here we go. Verse 18. Now you go. No, I'm just kidding. These are the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Aholibama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the son of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. In these are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Simon, oh, sorry, <laughs> Sorry, my mind's running up here. <laughs> Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Anah. These, and he is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. In case you got him confused with another one. These are the children of Anah, Dishan and Aholibama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshben, Ithran, and Cherin. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Aken. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anah, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Joab, Jobab, the son of Zerah, of uh, Bozrah, reigned in his place. Joab died. The Hushim of the, land, of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hushim died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, of course, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Abith. Hadad died, and Samla and Masrachah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadad reigned in his place. The name of his city being uh, Palgasol. His wife's name was uh, Mehetabel, the daughter of Mac Matred, daughter of Mezahab. There we go. Two more verses. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clan and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs, Tinma, Alva, Jetheth, Holibama, Ella, Pinyon, Kinez, Ternan, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Somebody, uh, Iran. These are the chiefs of Edom. That is Esau and the father, the Esau, the father of Edom, according to the dwelling places, in the land of their possessions. (laughs) 
All right, you're dismissed. Okay. <laughs> I really considered um, uh, allowing the Bible app to read it and just lip syncing it the whole time. That's what I really considered doing. Or I considered just letting the Bible app read it and just going to a blank screen online for those of you who are watching online and you would never know if I was reading it or not. Uh, but it, again, it was going to read it in a, in a much thicker accent than mine, so you'd figure that out. Uh, but I decided to just power through these, and, uh, and I practiced them a lot. So uh, again, if you think of any good baby names that you want to take from that list, you are welcome to. I hope you jotted those down along the way. So a couple of observations about this text that I think are uh, uh, kind of just jumped out to me uh, there in the beginning. Uh, the Edomite people descended from Esau, the son of Isaac, twin brother of Jacob. So we kind of got that in the beginning. Uh, the Edom and the Edomites, mentioned, they're mentioned some 130 times in the Bible, and they were a prominent group of neighbors to Israel. So as you read on through the Bible, you'll see their name come up. And so they'll kind of be just kind of tracking through uh, the Old Testament storyline as well. Uh, and when the, when the Israelites came through the wilderness... Uh, to the promised land in the time of Moses, uh, the Edom, Edomites refused to let them go through. Uh, you'll see that over in Numbers chapter 20. Uh, they blocked their way of going through, and this was kind of a, a big source of a discouragement to the nation at the time. And so all those, uh, that, that blockage that happens in Numbers, uh, they descend from some of those names that we actually came from uh, today. Uh, but even so, God talked about them and he said, look, I don't want you to uh, have disregard for the Edomites. Uh, you shall not abhor them is how the language that the Bible used. Uh, you shall not hate them at the time because, uh, because these are your brothers. These are your kinsmen uh, uh, throughout the land. These are people that are part of your family. Uh, but when we see the kings and the chiefs among the descendants of Esau, Honestly, we see more clearly what it was that God had to say about them. He, uh, but J uh, he said this, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I, I hated. You remember that? That came from Malachi. That, that's a text that sometimes gets used around. You've probably heard that somewhere along the way. And, and what that means is um, Esau clearly was blessed in this time. And we saw that last week when we read, read the text. Uh, that he had lots of uh, possessions, and, and so the Lord chose to bless him, but he was rejected from uh, being chosen to inherit uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so whenever it said, uh, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, it's because God's blessing was on Jacob, and, and it was not on uh, Esau. So that's where that language comes from, uh, that, that, that the, uh, the, the favor that he had toward Jacob looked like, I love you and I hate the other. That's, that's where that language actually comes from. Um, uh, kind of notable among some of these names is uh, Amalek. I told you to circle that in, in verse 12. Uh, from him came the Amalekites, who ends up being uh, some of the big uh, nemesis of Israel down in your, as you get further into the Old Testament. And, and then some of the descendants that you, uh, that you read about, some of them had some uh, specific meanings to their names. Uh, Dishon in verse 21 means gazelle. Uh, so there's, again, another one that you might want to write down. Uh, Alvin in verse 23 means wicked. Uh, Ithran in 26 means take advantage of. Aaron in verse 28 means mountain goat. Uh, and so that's a good one too. And Baal Hanan in verse 38, uh, mean, his name uh, embraced the false gods of Baal. And so there are some those are just some kind of high-level notes whenever you get to genealogies. It's, it's hard to get. I know probably when you're reading your Bible and you get to genealogies, do you get to that point and you go, oh, 
I gotta power through the genealogies. You know, what am I, what am I gonna get from the genealogies? What am I gonna learn from just reading off this list of names? Can I just kind of skim through it and consider myself reading it uh, for the day? Um, but, but God clearly had protected some of uh, uh, Esau and his descendants in some cases, and he had excluded some of his descendants uh, from the blessing again that Israel had. And, and then the straying of Esau that we saw early on in the text in Genesis really filtered down to his descendants. And what we see is them going further and further and further away from God. And and that's really where I want to get us to today is seeing that his descendants just continue to move further away from God. We, We saw in the text that it told us that they moved away because they had so many possessions they couldn't live in the same place. And it was almost the beginnings of those things where they moved physically away and then spiritually they just moved away from God further and further. And so as one of your pastors here at Refuge today, uh, I hope that we can learn to avoid some of these pitfalls that we see them in. Mainly the straying away or the drifting away that we see this group of people tended to do in the Old Testament. I I want to really just hone in on what does it mean to stay close? What does it mean to, to stay in fellowship? And what does it mean to stay in relationship with God. I, I want to help you fight any indifference that you might have toward the things of God. The things that makes us slide away, the things that make us just kind of turn and walk away. I want to help you grow in holiness today. I want to help you put your faith in something besides your paycheck today. And I want to encourage you today to prioritize your life with the living God. That's what I hope happens today. And, and I believe that, that, we, that from what, there's some things that we can take away from this, some, some principles that we can take away from this will hopefully help us see that. The life that we live, we live among people that are idolaters. We live among adulterers. We live among the greedy We live among the swindlers, and that may be some of us. But we live, as as fellow sojourners, we live in the middle of a world that that is rampant in all around us. So as people of God, we're called to live differently. We're called to live holy and separated lives, lives that look a little bit different than the world around us. Too many times, way too often, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I want my life to look like everybody else's around me. Don't don't you? I mean, I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. I don't want to look so different from the world that I become weird or odd. But the reality is, if we follow Jesus, we're called to be not of the world, but in the world, right? Live in the world. We have to live here, but don't be of the world. And that's a difficult one. But that's what I'm going to call you to today, church. I'm going to call you to that. I'm calling me to that. I'm calling you to that. I'm calling us to that collectively. And that's how we're going to pursue uh, this today. So 
Esau and his family and his lineage chose to go down a path that led them away from God, away from holiness. And you and I have a God-given responsibility to promote holiness. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to follow Jesus. Look around this room. Seriously, look, look around this room. If you're new to Refuge, I'll give you some instructions like this. I want you to do it. Refuge people, come on. Look around this room. We have a God-given responsibility to promote holiness with those people you just looked at. Those people that you just laid your eyeballs on, we have a responsibility to one another to promote holiness between us, between one another, as we go out in the world, not to necessarily make much of the name of refuge. We don't care about the name of refuge. We care about the name of Jesus. And so as people that follow Jesus, that claim that we follow Jesus, we want to be people that live holy and upright lives. So how can we effectively do this and not find ourselves sliding away and moving in the wrong direction like the descendants of Esau? So five ways that I want to share with you how we, the church, uh, are designed to help one another to avoid straying and drifting and moving toward holiness. Uh, and so five ways. First of this is this, sanctification in truth. Sanctification in truth. Sanctification is, according to Web, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says this, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So let's not let that pass by. Sanctification, what it means, once we become, once we repent of, the, of our sins and put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, when we repent and believe the gospel, the language we use here, because that's biblical language, uh, when we repent and believe the gospel, then we are justified, okay? Tracking with me? Yes. Can you say yes? Give, say yes. yes. Talk to me now. I'll be a better preacher if you'll talk a little bit to me, right? I don't need just one man talking to me. I need a few more. I know he's going to talk. I mean, we know that. I mean, he ain't speaking for y'all. Come on. Uh, but we are justified. We are, in right, we are in right positionally with God. But sanctification is from that point on until we see Jesus face to face, then we are being sanctified. We are being more like Jesus, okay? And so the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and enabled more and more to die to sin and live, un hello, uh, and live unto righteousness. Die to sin and live unto righteousness. Say that with me. Die to sin, live unto righteousness. So Jesus said this in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so God has given the apostles, he has given the prophets, he has given the evangelists, he has given the shepherds, he has given the teachers. All those are spiritual gifts that he has given to the church and people in the church to equip the church for every good work that God has prepared beforehand that you and I might walk in it. So he has, he has equipped me so that I can help equip you. He has equipped our elders and our leaders and people that are, are speaking into your life so that you may walk in the good works that God has prepared uh, that you might walk in them. The apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians 
He says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and make the church more like Jesus, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So he said, he's died for us and he wants to be able to present us holy and acceptable to God. And so he's going to continue to be changing us. You should be being changed if you're a follower of Jesus. You should not remain the same. Listen, if you've remained the same since you became a Christian, uh, you've got to either, either you're still an infant, still on the milk of the word, and you need to get, start getting on the meat of the word and begin to grow some in your Christianity, or maybe you're not a Christian. If you haven't grown any or changed any, or there's nothing about you that's different from the time that you said that you became a Christian until now, and it's 20 years later, you may not be a Christian. That's just the scripture talking. The scripture says when we, the spirit of God fills us, we become different people. It's inevitable for us to be different, right? And so we have to become different people when the spirit of God lives within us. And so look, when, we pre- when I preach, when anybody preaches from this pulpit, this is not just to fill a space on Sunday. This is not to just to take up some of your time on Sunday. Uh, but whenever we preach, when someone preaches from the pulpit or whenever you're, what, if you're from another church and you're uh, watching another pastor, if you're watching online and you watch other people online, uh, people don't do it just to fill space. People do this so that we may grow in our holiness. Well, how do we grow in our holiness, preacher? Well, one, when the words preached, our sin gets exposed. You sat here many times, right? I'm sure whether it's here or in another church or under somebody else's preaching and the preacher speaks about something and you're sitting there going, oh, he's he been reading my mail. Uh, I mean, he's been peeking in my window, preacher. Uh, I mean, right? Because the, the Holy Spirit convicts us, right, of our sin. Whenever somebody like me stands up and proclaims the word of God, it's not me convicting you of sin. It's the word convicting you. It's the spirit convicting you of the sin. And you know what that is. And so preaching helps expose our sin, uh, and it helps hold up our righteousness uh, of Jesus. Whenever, we, whenever preaching should, go, should encourage you as well to go, man, you're also sinful, but you're also righteous. You have been filled with the righteousness of Jesus, and so we don't have to wallow in our sin or live in shame in our sin, that we also have the righteousness of Jesus that has been accredited to my account. So when God sees me, what does he see? Yeah, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. I have put on the righteousness of Jesus when I have repented and believed and become a Christian. The word, whenever it's preached, it spurs us to repentance. Many times when the word gets preached from here or, where, or somebody else, you may be listening to a pastor along the way, uh, some, some of your sin comes up and hopefully that spurs you to con- uh, confess your sin and repent of your sin. And repentance is simply going, God, I recognize I've sinned against you and I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me for that? The scripture says, whenever we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is good news, right? The God of the universe forgives you of your sin whenever you tell him about it. That's pretty awesome, right? You don't have to hide that from him. It's not like you can be in, like if you're sinning in the dark, you think God can't see you? He does. I might not see you, but God sees you. He knows what you're doing. He knows what I'm doing. He knows when I sin. And so he says, when we confess that, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then the word directs our conduct. The word tells us how to live. Whenever we read the scriptures and we hear the scriptures and we hear it preached and we hear it taught, it tells us how we should live as Christians. 
We don't live like the world around us. We live differently. I have a, I have a thing in my, uh, a little wood thing in my um, house that says that Tanya made me that says live differently. It's something I like to say around here because we should, as Christians, live differently. And so the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And as we gather each week to hear uh, the word proclaimed, God the Holy Spirit uses us, uses that word to change us and make us more like Jesus. And so why is it important to hear it preached each week? Because God uses the feeble words of a preacher like me in an assembly like this to conform each of us into the image of Jesus. How crazy is that? That's crazy that that happens. You need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. I need to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Church, let's you and me submit to the word today and spur one another onto holiness. So how do we help each other onto holiness? Second is this, we need help in temptation. Amen? Amen. Yeah, we need help in temptation. The, the, the church should be a place where we pray for one another's holiness. Like where you should pray that I'll be more holy than I actually am. That's a big prayer. I need to pray for you that you'll be more holy than you are. You need to pray for one another that you'll be more holy than you actually are. Jesus taught us to pray like this. He said, he taught us to pray like, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, I'm sure that many of you have said that as you said the Lord's Prayer many times. Where are my athletes in the house? Where are you? Come on, raise your hand. I need to see them. I need to see your hands, athletes. Now, where are my former athletes in the house? Yeah, there you are. Yeah, y'all raise, I know we like to raise our hand. Y'all played, I played, yeah. I'll take you today. Uh, uh, and so probably somewhere in your athletic endeavors, whether they be good or bad, you have said the Lord's Prayer before a game. And how did that go? Yeah, it was mumbled or it was really fast, right? I'm not even sure you knew what you were saying or whatever. And so, and so it was a, it was a uh, I'm sure you've rushed through that numerous times. But Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray like this. When he gave them the Lord's Prayer, he said, pray like this. This is a model prayer for you. We've, we've talked about that before here at Refuge. This is something to model your prayer, build your prayer around a something like this, because Jesus knew that we had an enemy that would lead us into temptation. And so he said, you need to pray and ask God to help you not be led into temptation. And so when we pray like this, we're reminded that holiness is a community project for us. Whether we pray together in a, in a corporate setting like this, or whether you pray with your families, or, or you take some private time with the Lord, or um, you take on the, the cause of the church's holiness, and you pray on the church's behalf, uh, a praying uh, a holiness is a community project. And we are, or at least we should, ask God to grant holiness to each one of us that we should pray that we would be doing the will of God, no matter what the circumstances might be. And we should pray collectively and individually that we'll be kept from sin. I mean, we should pray specifically about that, that, that God would keep us uh, from sinning. I mean, we're all tempted in many ways. 
And many times we give in. Many times we just give in to that temptation. You may have something now that's just one of those ingrained, or the Bible calls them besetting sins that you just keep giving into over and over again. And if you're giving into one, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You think, I just can't seem to shake this one. This is my besetting sin. It's the thing I keep going back to over and over and over, and I can't seem to get out of that particular one. Listen, don't hide it. This is not a place to hide that sin. This is a place to get help with that sin. This is a place to go, hey, I want to confess my sin. What did I say earlier? When we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful and what? Just to forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. He promises to do that for us. And so we don't have to be people that hide in our sin anymore. You don't have to be someone that hides in your sin anymore. Do you ever feel that Satan whispers poisonous enticements to sin in your ear? You ever feel that way? See, remember that you don't stand alone. Or you should not stand alone. See, church... It is our high calling and our privilege to barrage the throne room of grace to find help, not only in our time of need, but in the time of need of our brothers and sisters. How do we fight sin? We don't fight it alone, but with the prayers of ourselves and with the prayers of one another. I need you to pray for me. You need each other to pray for each other. Look around. Seriously, look around. Look around again. The people that you just looked at should be the people that inhabit your prayers. The people that you just eyeballed should be the people that you speak off your lips and pray for. This is the church. We're the church. This is the church at refuge. And that's God's called us together. And he says we should pray for one another, for help in temptation. Pray when you think of someone that God will not allow them to fall into temptation. How do we help one another in holiness? We model holiness. We model it for one another. The Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so speaking the truth in love is not just merely saying the right words in the right way. Paul uses it to demonstrate something like holding on to the truth or adhering to the truth. Remember how Jacob held on to the angel? Remember we preached that a couple of weeks ago, how Jacob held on to the angel and he wouldn't let him go? Remember how I held on to the pulpit here and it wouldn't let me go? Uh, and, and, and remember how that, saw that picture uh, posted on social media? Thanks, people. Uh, um, and, and so it's, so holding on to that, it would be like me holding on to a cheeseburger or a plate of chicken strips. I mean, I mean, holding, guarding, not letting it go. This is mine and don't even come around. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's holding on fast to something like that. But even more than holding on to chicken strips or cheeseburgers, 
We hold on to the truth. We hold on to the truth. It's imperative for us to, to grasp the truth and hold on to the truth. And we do it so each of us will grow in Christ's likeness. That's why we hold on to the truth, not to make us more important than somebody else, smarter than somebody else, but so that we collectively can grow to be more and, and, and made more into the image of Jesus. We're called to link arms with one another. Do that right now. Link arms with somebody that's near you. I assume you know somebody that's, that you're sitting with pretty well, and if you're a guest and somebody strange is now holding your hand or hold, licking your arm, uh, not licking your arm, but linking, <laughs> linking, that could happen here. Just stranger things have happened. Uh, uh, linking your arm together with, with somebody. I, I, I hope that's not too awkward for you guys. See, listen, don't unlink yet. We need each other in our sanctification. We need to help one another in our sanctification. We link arms and we go at this together. This is, Christianity is not individualistic, silo Christianity. Christianity is linking together and helping one another. I need you, you need me, we're a happy family, right? With a great big hug. Kiss from me to you. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's what it's like. A holy kiss from me to you. I mean, that, that's what it looks like. All right, now, y'all stop touching each other. Um, what might that look like? Well, it might look like this. Um, maybe some of, uh, where, where am I, where's people in school? Teenagers, people in middle school, high school, where are you? I know you're like, oh, I don't want to raise my hand. I'm in school. Uh, all right, yeah, okay, I see you. Um, Here's a, here's a tough one. Maybe you teenagers are choosing to resist sexual temptation. Because I know mamas and daddies don't want to talk about that. The reality is our teenagers are inundated with sex, sex, sex. And it's okay, and it's fine, and, you, and nobody cares anyway. And the truth is the world around us doesn't care. They don't care. So, so maybe... Those of you teenagers who are following Jesus and want to follow Jesus, maybe you're choosing to resist that in your school where you are. When it seems like nobody around you cares or says, what's, what's the point of doing that? But in the church, whenever we choose to do something like that, whenever we take a stand against uh, the, the worldliness that's around us, we can encourage one another in the church and go, you know what? Hey, man, I'm being tempted in this just like you are. Let's, you and I, decide today that we're just not going to give in to that. Let's do that together. Maybe we can pray for one another and encourage one another whenever we are tempted in that way. Because, you, hey, teenagers, you will be. Mamas and daddies, your teenagers will be. And so maybe you go, I'm going to choose the way of holiness rather than just going on with the world. Or, or maybe... Maybe somebody here, maybe it's a mom here who's, who's choosing to decline some job promotion because you can, you're taking care of your parents. And you go, you know what? I, I, it's, it's important for me to, 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 to uh, push off some job promotion because it's more important for me to take care of my parents. And the world around you would look at you and go, what, are you lost your mind? You've got an opportunity to run up the ladder? Why would you not choose to do that? And, but, and you go, it's more important to me to take care of my parents than it is to get a job promotion. And I'm telling you, the world will look at you like you're crazy. But in the church, you know what? We might come around you and celebrate that and go, you know what? And I'm not saying don't take the job promotion. Don't, don't hear me saying that. 
I'm just saying that there may come a time that you go, this is more important to me, and I want to honor my mom and my father, and I'm going to take care of them in the last few years that they've got left. As the church, we come around and celebrate and encourage you in the times when the world around us just won't do it. Let's be imitators of Christ, church. Let's be imitators of Christ in all circumstances around us. Whenever you or I or anyone in this room chooses to live out the truth by grace, then the whole body gets encouraged by that. You may go, nobody's going to notice if I don't do this. Nobody's going to notice if I try to live a holy life. Yes, they will. This, the people around you in this church will notice and will celebrate that together and will encourage you in it. Whether you're a teenager or a tweenager or a 20-something or a 50-something, we'll encourage you. How do we encourage one another in holiness? Well, not only model holiness, but we promote holiness. The church should be a place where we actively promote holiness. Paul urged the churches to consider the conscience of others when making choices about their own conduct. In Romans chapter 14, the whole chapter in chapter 14 of Romans, the whole chapter in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians uh, were letters to the church at Rome, letters to the church at Corinth. And in both of those chapters, Paul is uh, uh, saying essentially the same thing. And all about doing nothing, say nothing, say it with a little more enthusiasm, all about doing nothing, nothing that would cause a brother or a sister to sin against their conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11 and 12 says this, so by your knowledge, this weak person, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And what he's talking about is eating meat to idols or uh, doing things that, uh, that a weaker brother may go, I can't do that because if I do that, then I'm going to be sinning. And so another brother comes along and says, well, I don't care what you're not going to do. I'm going to do it right in front of you. And he says, Paul says, that we are sinning against our brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Whenever we do that, we not only sin against them, who else do we sin against? Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Not sometimes not eat meat, but never eat meat if it makes my brother stumble. You go, does that mean I can never have a steak if my if my live with a vegetarian? Uh, I I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that if, if you've got a weaker brother and for conscience sake, and they're going, I'm going to sin against God if I eat this, that, 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 was the, that was the example that they used here because they were offering meat to idols. Okay, if you don't know the context, but they're offering meat to idols. And, and some of the people are going, well, I can't eat this because if I do this, then I'm going to be participating in what was happening there. And, and, and so they offered it to this weird idol that I don't even believe in anymore. And if I eat that, then I'm participating in that. And somebody over here was going, well, man, that's just a dead cow. I, put that up on my plate. You know, give me some A1 sauce. I'll eat that sucker. Uh, and, and so, but this guy that would eat it, uh, regardless, is sinning against the person if they're together and says that, hey, you know what? I, I can't do that. And so if they're together, he says, I, I'm not going to eat that meat if it's going to cause this guy to stumble. Now, what happens if this guy who is stumbling over that isn't in the picture? What can this guy do? Yeah, go ahead. You want to eat some steak? 
You'll take some other people and you know, it doesn't bother their conscience. Go eat a steak. Go to Outback. Cook one in your backyard. But we don't sin against our brother. If, it, if listen, not if they just go, man, I just don't do it because I've got a history of this and, you know, especially getting around alcohol and things like that. If you're new to refuge, we don't condemn alcohol drinking because we don't believe that the Bible condemns it exclusively. Uh, there's lots of places that we believe that, that the Bible absolutely explicitly condemns drunkenness and, and that some people shouldn't drink alcohol at all because their propensity to drink too much. And there's some people that can have an alcoholic beverage and they're fine. But some people go, I, I can't drink it because it sends, it, it's my conscience that I believe I, I shouldn't do it because God doesn't want me to do it. You know what I don't do around that person? I don't drink around them. Why? I would be, sinning, I would be causing them to sin or thinking that I'm, that I'm sinning. See what I'm saying? But if that bro is somewhere else and I go on vacation and I'm on the beach and I got a drink with an umbrella in it, I might have that by myself or with my wife or with some friends. Tracking with me? Some people shouldn't drink at all. A whole other sermon. We'll get into it later. Back to the text. Whoo, I'm out of time. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to talk faster. Romans 14, verse 20 says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so um, our, uh, our actions influence people, and we should promote holiness anytime we get an opportunity to say that. One commentator wrote this about the passage from Paul. He said this, the individualistic and selfish insistence that I will do everything I am free in Christ to do, whether it be eating idle food where in Corinth there or eating bacon in Rome, is not motivated by love. I'll read it again. The individualistic and selfish insistence that I will do everything I'm free in Christ to do, whether it be eating idle food or eating bacon, is not motivated by love. If I love someone and I understand just how important it is for them to maintain their integrity by doing only what their conscience allows, then I will do all I can to make it easy for them to do that. That's what it means to love one another. That's what it means to love one another. And so I want us to love one another. I want us to love one another better than we have for the last 12 years. Okay? We can't do anything about the last 12. We can do everything about what's ahead of us, right? And so I want us to love one another better in ways that we may have not ever thought about before. So let's do that. Lastly, and I'm, I'm going to jump ahead. How do we encourage one another in holiness is repentance and restoration. The truth is in our culture today that our coworkers, our neighbors, our fellow students, our friends have little care about whether or not you are our sin or not. Right? Most people really just don't care. They probably care more if I sin than you sin since I'm a pastor. They would probably look at me a little bit more different because I am a pastor of the church rather than you, but most people just really don't care. They don't care what you're doing or what you're not doing. Only in the church do we find saints that love us enough that are willing to call us back from sin whenever we sin. Only with a group of people that we call the church, that we call our brothers and sisters that are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, that we are living in community with, that we're calling ourselves the church together, only in places like this and in spaces like this does it matter, and it should matter. Calling people back from sin is difficult. It's tricky. And sometimes it's even divisive. Some people just walk away from you and go, you know what? 
I, I'm not, I, you, you can't control, stop trying to control me, don't tell me what to do, and I'm out. Deuces, I'm out of here, and I, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. And, and so calling people away from their sin is very hard in the church. But that's the way we love one another. If you see me in sin and you don't call me out away from it, you don't love me very well. And if I see you in sin and I don't speak to you about it, then I don't really love you very well and I have, very I have much disregard for your soul. God didn't give us or leave us to wallow and indulge in our sin. He sent Jesus to pay the price for our sin. To pay, the penalty for sin is death. It cost Jesus his life to cover your sin debt so that you might die to sin and be raised to righteousness. That's what it means. Listen, that's what it means to be a Christian. Whenever you were saved, it means to die to your sin and to be raised to walk in righteousness. We have been given life in Jesus. He calls, his spirit fills us and he calls us to live a different way. Live in the world, not of the world, to be different, to live differently. This church is here to be a beacon of what holiness should look like. That's what we should be about. The church, or this church, is established to herald a better way a better way to live, a better way is finding Jesus. In our long text today of names in Genesis, the list of people in Esau's lineage went their own way. They did their own thing. They lived their lives the way they wanted to live them and were outside the household of faith. But there's a better way. And brothers and, as brothers and sisters, let us encourage one another toward maturity. Build one another up. Admonish one another. Lovingly speak to one another. Exhort one another. Stir up one another to good works. Pray for one another. Meet one another's temporary needs. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Comfort one another. Show hospitality to one another. Forgive one another. And rejoice with one another. That is a picture of a family and a lineage united by the Spirit of God drawn close by our shared salvation, empowered by God the Spirit, empowered to live in the age in which we live, to be salt and light in a world that is desperate for some hope. A hope that God loves them. A belief that Jesus will see them and save them. And then a church, hopefully this church, that will welcome them with open arms. Let's be that church. Let's be that church. Let me pray for you.